you will go ahead and uh, turn in your Bibles to the book of Matthew. We're going to continue in the Sermon on the Mount uh, as we uh, look at what Jesus taught um, us through his um, sermon just a few, few short years ago. Um, kind of recapping where we've been as we, uh, as we look at this passage of Scripture together. Uh, we, we start looking at what it means to be the authentic disciple or follower of God, what it means to understand who, who God is and what he's called us to be. And so Jesus gives us what we call the Beatitudes. And then he, he ramps it up a little bit more and, and talks to us about how we are supposed to be a salt and light, that which stops decay and shines light to the glory of Christ and, and then just calls us to a deeper righteousness, that which surpasses the scribes and the Pharisees. And so if you haven't been with us the last uh, three or four Sundays, that's kind of where we've been. And so I do want to encourage you to go ahead and, uh, and invite others to come along and be a part of, of our study together, because that's how we know that they are hearing the, the truth of the word of God. And it's through knowing the truth of the word of God that we can accurately see the error and the, the evil that is all around us, in the world around us. And we can see clearly what Jesus has asked us to do in this world and who he's called us to be according to the purpose of the gospel. So we're in the middle of this, well, I say in the middle, we're in the first third of this uh, little mini-series uh, of the greatest sermon ever preached about ethics according to Jesus. How, how Jesus takes who we're supposed to be and then the law that God has given us and applies it to us under the cross of Jesus Christ to make a difference in the world around us. So, so I've asked you through our, our weekly emails to go ahead and start reading ahead um, just so you'll know next week we'll be in uh, the next couple of verses so you'll know where we are so let me encourage you to go ahead even now and begin uh, reading ahead to to where we're going so that you when you come on Sunday morning it's like oh that's new information to me no it's it's, it's getting into exactly what we're doing together as a church because we live in a morally sick world and Jesus hits us between the eyes with something today that was going on then, was going on thousands of years before then, but we still deal with on a day-to-day -day basis. So if you found your place in Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 27, um, I do want to invite you to stand with me. If you're able, as we read the word of God together, as, as one church, studying and looking at the words of Christ given for us. And it says there, starting in verse 27, you have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Let's pray together. Father, we ask this morning that as we stand united on the gospel, that your spirit open the, the parts of our heart that we want to sometimes close off, that, that we allow you to take full residence within us. And this morning, that you'd give us understanding of your word, that it's not just a them outside issue, but but as you said so many times in the Old Testament, 
Uh, judgment starts with the house of God and, and we have to allow ourselves to be scrutinized by your spirit as we look at your word that we could be a visible difference for the gospel in our community. So Lord, we ask that you would pierce our hearts this morning with your word. Show us what you would have us to do as it pertains to, to, to lust and adultery even now. And we ask this in the name of Jesus, amen. amen. You may be seated. So we're looking at a passage of scripture that has everything to do with our culture today. Some of you will remember July 2015. There were a lot of uh, terrible things that happened in July 2015 uh, between uh, Mother Emanuel AME and Charleston. And, um, and, uh, and then there was this big data breach from AshleyMadison.com. Now, some of you may remember some of the headlines about AshleyMadison.com. AshleyMadison.com was a website that was geared to allow you to have a secret extramarital affair. You could go online and create a user profile and have your email address and phone number and all this stuff stored and it would casually, so they say, uh, connect you with other people looking for the same thing. Now the problem that happened was over 60 gigabytes of personal data was, sh was shared and leaked out to the public. And when that happened, we found out that there were government officials at the national, state, and local levels. We found out that there were uh, popular celebrity figures. Remember the Duggar family, uh, 19, 18, 35,000 kids and counting, whatever the number was. Uh, Josh Duggar, one of the Duggars, was linked to one of these AshleyMadison.com accounts. And so we see this, this kind of ease, well, nobody will know. Their slogan, after all, was life short, have an affair. We can look at this adulterous thing and say, man, good grief, the world is so wicked. Would it, surprise, would it surprise you if I told you that one of the names that was found was a professor at Lavelle College of the New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary? A man who, after his wife and children tried to offer hope and peace and forgiveness to him, ended up taking his own life because of the guilt. Let me give you some statistics on this. Just, you know, I like stats and that kind of stuff. Because we place a high premium on, on marriage in the church, and rightfully so. And, and so, so, so we shake our heads in disgust at, at that, that pig that was caught sleeping around, or, or, or that, that man that was caught up in an affair with someone at work, or even we laugh with nationalistic embarrassment at Bill Clinton's, I did not have sex with that woman. We do that because it's so ingrained in our culture, but let me tell you a couple of things. 1997, a survey was done by Boston Shackelford, and it showed that maybe up to 60% of married people in our country, 1997, 20 years ago, would engage in infidelity at some point. Maybe this is more staggering. Wall Street Journal in 2008, Naomi Riley uh, did a survey and a study and showed that 19% of men and 13% of women under the age of 30 report infidelity. Newlyweds, basically. That number from 1993 to 2008 rose uh, 45% among men and 28% uh, among women. They tried to say that it was because their jobs had them flying all over the country and because they were never home enough and because they had had many partners before they were ever married. 2006, one study nationwide showed that about 3% of children born in America are the result of infidelity. What do we do with this? 
Jesus, Jesus comes into this, into this teaching and he's showing the disciples what it means and showing his followers and those that were listening what it means to have this righteousness that's greater than the scribes and the Pharisees, something that's better than what even the super holy people themselves would be able to attain. And we ask ourselves, okay, what do we do with this? As the church, we must stand for something different. Because I'm not gonna ask you to raise your hand and show your hand, but I will guarantee you that what Jesus shows us in this passage is that every single one of us, by the time we're 16 and up, has committed adultery. So, so what do we do with that? Let's look at this passage of scripture together. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. We look at this passage and the first thing we see is that Jesus challenges our hearts. Jesus challenges our hearts. He, he, he shows us something and then he applies it to our hearts so that we would have a better understanding of who he is. He starts in the Old Testament with Exodus chapter 20, verse 14. That's the seventh commandment. Don't commit adultery. He uses, and maybe your translation says that you have heard it said, thou shalt not. That's the old King James. Or, or your translation may say, you will not. The reason it's phrased that way is because Jesus, in what's translated here, is a future tense verb, which means it's a verb for the future. But the way Jesus uses it and the way scripture records it is like this. You hear it now and it's forever applicable to you kind of like when you address your children. The, the first time you address your, child, your child, you say, you will not speak to mommy or daddy that way. And you're not talking about just that one time they said that. You're talking about as long as you've got breath in you, if you want to keep your breath, you're going to make sure you don't talk to mom and dad that way. We understand the way these words work. So Jesus says, you've heard it said, you're not gonna do this. You will not do this. You hear it now and the command goes for all time. And Jesus says, this is the command. This is the seventh command. You know the law. And so we've got to look at what this law does. The law itself prohibits the act of adultery. The law itself prohibits. It places this nice prohibition. Do not do it. Some of you hated the prohibition, do not go in the balcony because we had the balcony closed and the ropes and everything. We, we see it. And Jesus upholds the law once again to demonstrate what it is that he is commanding us and what God has affixed in eternity past as his moral law that we should not transgress. And we, because we're people, look for the loopholes. We, because we're people, we say, all right, there's the bar right there. But if I can get this high, I'll be okay. If I can just, you know, reach up and touch it. My, my church growing up had a gym. And, and we had the goals that you could raise from eight foot to 10 foot or whatever. And I can remember as in third grade, it was my desire to be able to touch the eight foot rim, to be able to get it. So man, I'd go in there after school and I'd run and I'd jump and I'd run and I'd jump and I'd run and I'd jump and I'd run and I'd jump. And finally, I was able to just tip it. Well, as I grew a little bit, and the A-foot, I mean, that's easy. I mean, you could palm dunk that thing, and you just stand up and do that. Man, that's great. Put it up to 10 feet. Oh, yeah. See, these were the days of Shaquille O'Neal and Anthony Hardaway with the Orlando Magic. 
I don't know if the Hawks were actually still playing basketball in the mid-90s. Nobody has any records of them. But, but they came back a few years later. And, and, and so I'm watching this, and Michael Jordan and Scottie Pimm, like, yeah, man, they can dunk. I can dunk, yeah. Not keeping in mind that they were like 10 inches taller than me. And so I raised the goal, and I'd run. I'm like, yep. And I'm like, oh, I can touch the net. All right, we're getting there. That's what we want to do. We just want to be able to flip the bottom of the net and say, man, I got it. I can get the goal. But that's not what Jesus does here. Jesus says, you've heard that it was said, you will not commit adultery. Do not commit adultery. Adultery, we would like to say, is easily defined. We, We can easily define adultery as this. Working definition. Sex with someone who is not your spouse, period. So so the old word that we used to use is fornication. Nobody likes to use that word. It's it's hard to say, it sounds archaic, it sounds like something your great-grandmother would say, ah, fornication. No, we, we shy away from it, so we try to soften it like having an affair, sleeping together, an unfortunate hookup. That's what we try to say. But what the Bible says is it is an act of sex without your spouse. Or here's a better way to put it, with no regard to your spouse. See, what happens is now we start kind of pulling some things apart because we say, well, I'm not married. It's okay because I'm not married. They're not married, so that's not somebody. They're not somebody's spouse now, but one day they will be. It's not yours. The command wasn't just, if you're married, don't have sex with somebody else that's not married or somebody. It is not until you are in that union of one man, one woman, that you come together. Everything else is off limits. That's what the law prohibits. And we as a culture have just kind of gotten away from that. We as a civilization, even in the church, turning a blind eye to sexual immorality, as long as, let's let's be real, we're Baptists, as long as you're not gay, it's okay, is kind of the mantra that we try to operate on. But what the Bible explicitly says is, no, it is one man, one woman designed by God to leave and cleave and be united into a one flesh union. And Jesus says, anything outside of that is adultery. You've heard it said, don't do that. That's the law. But then Jesus kind of takes it one step further to pull himself out of being just this legalistic preacher that says, oh, you don't do this. Because his purpose is to show us how to have a righteousness that is deeper and greater and more than what the scribes and the Pharisees had. And so in verse 28, he says, I tell you that everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery. See, where the law prohibits the act, my desire or the desire entices the act. So he steps it one step further here. He takes us just a little bit deeper into this enticement. And notice he starts with a look. He says, everyone that looks at a woman, women looking at men, with desire. Notice he doesn't say, you cannot look at another woman. So everybody can't just like walk around looking like this. You think traffic's bad now? Try driving around like that. You're cruising down Interstate 85, everybody doing the speed limit at 70. And all, you're like, there's a woman, so you gotta look up. And you run into the median wall. And everybody in Atlanta's angry at you because you shut down the interstate, all because you all, he doesn't say you can't just look. He also doesn't, you know, prohibit any type of interaction. Familial, business, professional interaction. Some cultures and some religion would actually 
arrest you, maybe even put you to death for talking to a married woman or if you were a woman talking to a married man. That's not what Jesus does. What Jesus does is he pulls our heart back into it and he locates the, the error and the sin and the desire. Notice he says, if you look at this woman a specific way with lust, lustfully, with desire, the word he uses there is the Greek word epithemia. Here's the cool thing about this word. It carries this big range. And I know, you, I know all of you are gonna go home and talk, start talking Greek and all that stuff because that's what you came here to do is learn Greek, right? So, so it's this Greek word and it carries the range of pulling in a desire for something that is not rightfully yours. That's what lust is. It is a disoriented desire for something that God did not give you that God placed off limits. He says, if you look at a woman with this same desire, to the scribes and the Pharisees, they could get away with it. They could get away with, oh, I've never committed adultery because I didn't do that. But Jesus says, no, you want a deeper desire. You want something that starts in your heart, this desire, this covetousness. That's another word we don't use quite often enough, covetousness, partly because it's kind of funny and hard to say. Go home, stare in the mirror and say, covetousness, covetousness, covetousness. And you'll eventually be able to get it there. But the word he uses takes us to the 10th commandment. You remember the 10th commandment? You shall not have want or desire for anything that is your neighbor's, his wife, his servant, his house, his donkeys, anything. Because it's not yours. See, there's a desire for something that's not ours. And, and we get it naturally from our first father, from our first mother. We go back to Genesis chapter three and we see that this slithering serpent comes in to deceive and he looks there at the woman and says, hey, did God really say you couldn't eat that? Well, no. Well, God doesn't want you to eat that because he doesn't want what's best for you because he knows what's best for you is to be like him. And if you eat like that, you'll be like him. And he just doesn't want, God doesn't really love you. See, Satan still uses that same line. Satan's a one-trick pony. Satan's a one-hit wonder. Everything he does is just remake the same old song over and over and over again. If you like R&B, he puts in R&B. If you like country western, he puts in country western. If you like rock, he puts in rock. If you like rap, he puts in rap. If you like the rat pack, he puts in the rat pack. He uses the same thing over and over and over. So he comes to us and says, you know what? God wants you to have more. And that, the reason he put it off limits is because he doesn't want you to be happy doesn't truly love you. Don't you want to be happy? And that what a American's all about, life, liberty, and the pursuit of being happy? God just doesn't want you to be happy. And Genesis chapter three says that Eve looked and saw, and with desire, she saw that it was good. God put it off limits, and she said, oh no, I want, I want, I want. This isn't a layaway plan, this is a buy it now. And we've been paying for it later ever since. She took and she ate. And you know what she did? She handed it to Adam. Adam wasn't out doing what he was supposed to do. He was standing there watching the whole thing take place. Not being a man and speaking up when evil was taking place in his, in his presence. Not being a man and standing up against the wiles of Satan who was out to deceive. And he said, oh yeah, I'll take that. And ever since then, our desires have enticed acts against the prohibitions God has made. And you know why? 
Because if the prohibition prohibits, if the law prohibits, and if desire entices, the third thing we see in this is that my heart adjudicates, adjudicates. Your, your heart deciphers whether or not this is permissible or impermissible. Look at what Jesus says. He says in this passage of scripture, I'm here to tell you, you know the law, but if you do this, if you look at this woman with lust, where? In your heart. Just like murder started with anger in the heart. Just like the wiles of this uh, intrinsic and disgusting racism that's going on in Charlottesville, Virginia, and all across our country, it's not just an outward, it's an attitude of the heart. Jesus says your adultery didn't start when you got to the bedroom or the hotel room or whatever room you were in. It got when you went in your heart and you said in your heart, I want what God didn't give me. I want that woman. You know why this is such a big deal? Because what that has done is in your heart, you have just taken away the image of God from that person. They are now just a woman or a man just there for your pleasure and your benefit and not being made in the image of God. And in your heart, you've said, that's okay. And Jesus says, it's not just what you did behind closed doors. It's what you did behind the closed heart. And the scribes and the Pharisees could say, oh yeah. The scribes and the Pharisees could be just like anyone in our culture saying, man, I didn't seal the deal. We, we didn't go all the way. It was just an emotional thing. I, I just looked, and, oh, it was, it was just pornography. I wasn't actually there doing that. No, what Jesus says is in your heart, you've broken the law. And he does this to show us our great need of him because many of us forgot that that was part of the law, that the law went above and beyond just what happened in that room and what was going on in our heart. And so our desires and our heart start, start coming open under the teaching of the gospel, under, under what Jesus actually opens up for us. And we look and we see, wait a second, wait a second, following Christ has so much more to do with everything in my life than I even realized. And so then Jesus reels us in. He's challenged our heart and now he challenges our desires. He challenges our desires because he's located our heart as the center of these desires, not our mind. See, in Western civilization, we, we want to say that our mind's the one in control. So, so we say things like, you know, I'm gonna do this as long as I feel about it, feel, feel like it. So in just a few months, we're going to get to a new year and everybody's going to make those new year's resolutions. And you're like, yeah, I'm going to stick to it this time. I'm going to stick to it. And then like day three, you don't feel like it. So you don't stick. See, we say that, oh, we have this mind power, but then we don't feel like it. So it doesn't happen. So really what we have is a heart orientation that goes on. And Jesus comes in here and says, look at the attitude of the heart. Look at where the desires actually stem from in the heart. And we have to ask ourselves right now of this passage and of ourselves three basic questions. Three basic questions that Jesus is going to kind of walk us through in this passage of scripture as he challenges our desires. And the very first one is, how much value do I actually put on purity? How much value do I put on purity? We get into this passage of scripture and Jesus is talking with these followers and he says, look, you know the law, 
but, but are you willing to really flesh out the law as far as it goes? Do, do you really value the other person? Do you really value the relationship with God? Do you really value that I'm standing before you as the King of Kings, the Prince of Peace, the Lord of Lords, standing here giving you the heart of God right here on this Judean hillside? Are you aware that I am giving you more than what the scribes and the Pharisees did and I'm offering you my very own life so that you could know the true peace of God? And we look at this passage of scripture, like, Evan, I'm not seeing that. that my transla- you must have a new translation. Mine doesn't say that. Because when Jesus teaches us, he's not teaching us here. He's teaching us here. That's why God wrote his law on our hearts that we could know the true beauty and value of who he is. And so, so purity isn't just, well, I know I'm not supposed to do this. It's looking back to the motivation behind. It's being willing to ask the questions, what, why did I do that? What, why, why did I say that? Why did I act on that? Why did I feel that way? That's why Paul in the book of Romans gets this little mental war going on. It's like, hey, you know what? I try really hard and I find that I'm doing the things I don't want to do and the things I don't want to do, I find myself doing and, 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 and I get in this thing and he says, oh, what wretched man I am. What Paul is demonstrating for us is exactly what Jesus shows us in the Sermon on the Mount. That inward wrestle of following Christ, of not so much making sure I keep all the rules and follow, but that I'm allowing his grace, I'm allowing his mercy to radically transform me into something different than what the world around me is used to. That's what the authentic follower of Christ does. The authentic follower of Christ says, you know what? It's not just enough, did I do this or not do this? Was I pure in what I did? See, because the scribes and the Pharisees, after all, could say, I did not commit adultery. And they would have been right there with Bill Clinton. and did not have sex with that woman. But Jesus says, but you weren't pure. You weren't pure in what you did do. The second question that we have to ask ourselves, and this is where Jesus takes us, is, What's standing in my way of righteousness? What stands in my way of righteousness? To be sure, Jesus Christ gave us a clear-cut path to the foot of the cross where we could experience the true righteousness that God requires. But when we go through the cross, we must operate under the power of the Holy Spirit, given by the blood of Christ, that we would maintain and walk in the righteousness we have received. So, but we live in a world that's going to throw roadblocks and hurdles. This is probably bad of me to admit. But when the Olympics come on and they're running and jumping the hurdles, I'm always looking for the person to fall. I'm always looking for the one that's going to go, oh, that quiet, you know, and you can always see it. You can always see it because what happens is they don't stumble on one. They tip their toe on one and they keep going and then they tip a little bit more on the next one. And then by the third one, it's a full face plant. And, 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 and the, the ridiculous side of me, just being, you know, fully honest with all of you, uh, gives extra points for the ones that hit their face on the pavement. Those hurdles stand in our way of righteousness every single day. And, and, and they grasp for us. 
and they catch our toe this time and they catch our ankle the next time and they catch our shin the third time and by the fourth or fifth when we're laying flat on our face because we saw the hurdles but we didn't do anything about them. And so Jesus brings in some natural metaphors here. He says, hey, your eye and your hand. Now, I do not believe that Jesus is actually preaching self-mutilation. So nobody go home and get the cleaver out and say, well, you've been a good hand for me and chop it off. I don't believe that's exactly what Jesus is doing here. But what I do believe is that Jesus is asking us to look deeper into our hearts and start asking the questions. Is this worth it? Is this standing in the way of me walking in the righteousness that Christ Jesus has given? If you remember, Jesus said a few things about this over in chapter five, verse eight, he says, Blessed are the pure of heart, for they will see God. What stands in the way of that purity, that pure heart that shows us how to see the face of God? Oh, you remember the Psalm? they one of my favorite. I love the Psalms. The, the Psalms are great for so many reasons because they draw us into this, this breadth of worship. You know, it's not always just the same tune every single time. And if you read the Psalms, you start thinking that David was probably due for a mental hospital. Because in the, in the one, he's like, oh, Jesus, or God, you're so wonderful and so close. I could reach out and touch you. You're in the air I'm breathing. And the next, God, where are you? Like, what? <laughs> There's a little whiplash there. You're so far away. I don't know what's going on. Oh, here you are. It's, what are you doing, David? But he gives us some things called ascension psalms. In Psalm 24, he says, who is it that's worth? Who is it worthy? Who is it that can go and ascend the hill of God? Who is it that can go and be in his presence? It's the one with clean hands and a pure heart. We get our pure heart based on the righteousness of Christ as he comes and gives us the forgiveness of sins that we so desperately need by his blood. What stands in our way of walking in that? Jesus says, if, if you have a right hand that's causing you to sin, I love the word that he uses there. Your translation may say, uh, cause you to stumble, uh, makes you stumble, causes you to sin, leads you to sin. The word he uses is a wonderful word. It's the, in, in the Greek, Jesus wasn't speaking Greek, but in the Greek, it's the Greek word skandalizo. We get our English word scandalize or scandal from it. Jesus just asked us, what is scandalizing you? What is creating a scandal in your life? And we can go back through some of the great scandals of American history. We can go Watergate. We can go uh, whatever the big one was in the 90s. We've got every decade to say, here's a scandal, here's a scandal, here's a scandal. But here's what scandal truly means by Merriam-Webster. An act or action by one of a religious profession that would cause others to doubt. Or another way that Merriam-Webster defines uh, the word scandal is this, an act or an action that would cause one to lose perseverance in a religious affair. Here's the question he's asking. What's in your life that is hindering your religious ability before God? And I'm not saying we gotta, oh, we gotta come in here and be real religious, but what's causing you to lose credibility? Church, I, I believe that we together have a lot of face to save and, and, and a lot of reason why people would say, you know what, I haven't seen the power of that gospel in your life. 
And Jesus says, if this is scandalizing you, if this is creating a scandal in your life, are you really going to put up with it? Are you really going to keep it? Are, are, are you going to walk around with a gangrenous hand that threatens to rot your entire arm off? Or are you going to get rid of it? What stands in your way of righteousness? Now, I can't answer that question for you. But here's what I can answer is what righteousness actually looks like. See, when we come to righteousness, it shows us that we must learn to take sin seriously. I believe that one of the primary reasons we have the gospel of Jesus Christ is to demonstrate to us what God thinks about sin. And it's not until we understand, as Martin Lloyd-Jones says, it's not until we understand the nature of sin and all of its atrocities that we would truly understand the New Testament way of salvation. That, that Jesus Christ would come in and remove our sin by his own blood. But sin is not a popular word in our culture. We don't want to talk about sin or maybe even don't even want to talk about our own sins because our culture treats sin as something that's abnormal. Our culture treats sin as something that's kind of, you just kind of manage it. You kind of treat it like you would with medicine, but you don't repent of it and you don't remove it. But Jesus says, if there's something in here that's bringing out sin, get rid of it, Period. And in the context of this passage of scripture, he's talking specifically about what's causing you to fall into lust time and time and time again. It could, be a, it could be a cellular device. It could be a computer. It could be an inappropriate office relationship. It could be billboards and magazines that you see all over. No matter what it is, Jesus says, if it's there, it's causing a scandal in your life. Get rid of it. Get rid of it. Period. But you know what? You could actually broaden this out to just beyond lust. And I believe that's what Jesus intends for us to do. I believe he intends for us to take this scandal in our lives and remove it as he says about God taking our sin away in Psalm 139 as far as the east is from the west. Where it'll never touch again. So, some of us are clinging on to things that are causing others to doubt our credibility as true followers of Christ Jesus. It could be a, an identity that we've created. It could be a piece of our history. It, it could be a flag. And Jesus says, if it's creating a scandal, is it worth it? What stands in your way of righteousness? And the third question we ask that Jesus brings us to in this passage of scripture is what am I willing to sacrifice? What am I willing to sacrifice? See, these two second, these second and third questions that we have here are actually how we answer the first question. The value that we place on purity is demonstrated by how readily we recognize what is standing in our way and if we're willing to sacrifice it. If we're willing to sacrifice it. See, we, we bought a house in Anderson, South Carolina seven years ago and, and I've got to go tomorrow to close on it because God gave us a buyer and we got to get rid of it and all that stuff. So, so, so I appreciate your prayers as we, as we travel tomorrow to take care of all that and that my hand doesn't give out signing that thing away. But we, we bought a refrigerator when we bought this house. It was a Whirlpool refrigerator on sale at Lowe's and it was a great deal. We loved it. It was good. And it had the little water filtration system in it. Now, now, now we could all say, man, we love purified drinking water. We buy it by the bottle. We buy it by the gallon. We have it in our refrigerator. 
Well, after about six months, the little light inside the refrigerator went from green to red to symbolize that that filter is no longer purifying the water that you're drinking. And, and we lived in Anderson where we got the water out of Lake Hartwell, which is not the world's cleanest lake. It's slightly above the Ganges River there in India. And, and so, so we get this water and we've got this filter and the light started turning red. And so I went, I was like, well, the light's red. We need to get a new filter. I went, Man, those things are like 60 bucks. I wasn't willing to sacrifice for it. So for the last seven years, six and a half years, when that light turned red, I just pushed the button in the refrigerator to make it turn green again. <laughs> I was the only, really the only one drinking that water anyway. It didn't bother me. I grew up in South Georgia drinking out of a garden hose. We had running water. It wasn't from my neighbor's house or anything. But I wasn't willing to sacrifice so that the water that we were drinking from that particular source was pure. I knew the problem. I knew what stood in the way of us having that pure water, but I wasn't willing to go to Lowe's and shell out 60 bucks for a thing that's gonna have to replace in six months. I wasn't willing to sacrifice. Some of us are pushing that reset button every few months in our lives, thinking that this is gonna be the, the, the button that we need to push to get it right. When Jesus has taken his finger by the power of the Holy Spirit and placed it right on your heart and says, this is standing in your way. Do you value purity or not? Will you sacrifice this or not? And he brings it into a culture that if you lost your hand or you lost your eye, you'd be unable to work. You would not have the ability to have your daily wage. You would forfeit your daily bread. And Jesus says, do you follow me that closely that you would give it up? Church, I believe that if we ask these same questions of ourselves right now and we look specifically at what Jesus has done and we allowed the Holy Spirit to have reign, when we have the invitation in a minute, this altar would not be empty at all. Actually, I believe the pews would be the ones that are empty because every single one of us can readily identify something that we might be clinging on to because it's fun, it's easy, it's exciting. We like it. The gospel's calling us to give it away, to sacrifice it, to cut it off because it's creating a scandal and, and, and hindering our ability to be an effective, true witness of the gospel in a world that needs the faithfulness of God's people standing for his truth and his righteousness in a world that is drowning in muck. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 16, if you wanna follow me, you must daily pick up your cross and deny yourself. That's what it looks like to sacrifice. Deny yourself the right, the privilege of being able to do this for the cause of the righteousness of Christ that others would hear, that others would see, that others would know that our Redeemer lives.